everybody and welcome to Calvary Church Online. We're thrilled that you joined us this morning and I encourage you to stay till the end of the service and then go to the website, go to our Facebook page, go to Instagram and check out some of the other things that we've been uh, loading on those different media for you guys to partake of and we think that you'll be uh, benefited by them. I also want to say happy Mother's Day to all of you moms And I've got some good news, bad news, depending on which category you're in. I am not talking about mothers today or Mother's Day. I know that makes some of you happy and others of you sad, but maybe there is a sense in which you can do your own application. We are starting a series today that we're calling Countercultural Church. And our purpose over these next few weeks is going to be how can the church be in a culture but also different from the culture, countercultural in a positive way. Well, as you read through the New Testament, you discover that the family is the church in microcosm and the church is the family in macrocosm. Therefore, as the church is called to connect and impact, so families are called to connect connect with one another, loving, serving each other, and then to impact each other in the community and from that family outside that family unit. Just as the church is to connect and impact together and then spill over from that center to connect and impact with those outside. I'll leave the specific application for you moms and for you parents, for you kids to think through but that is one point of identification that we can keep in mind when we think about church, think about family. Countercultural church. We're gonna work our way through the Corinthian epistles uh, these next few weeks. And we're not gonna go verse by verse. We're gonna go thematically through the two letters, trying to see what differences and what similarities there are between that day and our day so that we can connect and impact better in our context. Well, if you're ready, get your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter one. I'm gonna read the first nine verses to get us started. You'll see where we're gonna go from there. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. First and second Corinthians are kind of paradoxes. And here's what I mean. 
it's not going to be long as you read through those letters to discover that there were lots of problems in the church in Corinth. So for example, there were divisions. They were fighting over superiority. They were fighting over how spiritual growth happens best. They were fighting over which spiritual gifts were most important. They were even fighting over the communion services that they had. They were fighting over gender. They were fighting over almost anything you could think of. And yet in the midst of these letters that have all these problems, we find some of the most beloved chapters in all of the Bible. For example, the greatest chapter on spiritual gifts is found in these letters. The greatest chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, that's been read at more weddings than any other piece of literature is found in Corinthians. The greatest chapter on hope, the hope that Jesus brings through the resurrection, found in 1 Corinthians. The most extended discussion on giving comes in 2 Corinthians. So in the midst of these letters that are all about problems and difficulties, we see lots of chapters and lots of material that has resonated with Christians through the centuries and needs to resonate with us as well. In some ways, reading through First and Second Corinthians is going to be like having your parents yell at your siblings. I remember as a kid, I used to kind of enjoy when my brother or sister were being disciplined by my parents. Maybe my parents were giving them a talking to or maybe a yelling at, and I was on the sidelines. For once, I wasn't being yelled at. I wasn't the one in trouble. And I kind of enjoyed listening my parents ream my brother and sister out. Well, First and Second Corinthians can kind of be like that. Paul's going to have a lot to say by way of disciplining them. But yet in the midst of that, the grace and peace of the gospel comes through loud and clear. Well, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start by looking at the context of Corinth. What is it about this city that makes it so strategic in the ancient world? Well, first of all, Corinth was located on an isthmus. Now, an isthmus is a small strip of land between two large sections of land with water all around, kind of like a little land bridge. You can go to the back of your Bible and kind of check out the map. Corinth will be in the middle of the Mediterranean and you'll see a very tiny little strip of land. To the one side would have been Europe. To the east would have been Asia. And there's Corinth right at the strategic location in between Europe and Asia. Now here's another fact you have to know. Corinth sat north of Achaia and south of Macedonia. So Achaia was the big piece of land below Corinth and the Mediterranean Sea was rather treacherous. And so rather than sailing the ships all the way around Achaia, Corinth and Sancria, the two ports, became places where they would unload ships on the European side, on the Greece side, transport the um, cargo to the Asian side, And not only was the maneuver faster, it was also a whole lot safer. Now, Corinth was a relatively new city compared to a lot of other cities that we read about in the the New Testament. Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth just a few decades before Jesus. And he rebuilt it, which meant there was no old aristocracy around. 
So lots of newcomers, entrepreneurs, upstart leaders, people that wanted to make money, great risk takers, they all flooded to Corinth. And in this strategic location, they poured their money, they spent their time and energy, they invented lots of things, and Corinth became a hotbed of religious, political, and economic capital. There were other things that Corinth was known for. Corinth was kind of a place where anything goes was the motto. Anything goes sexually. So as you read through the letters, you're going to discover sex was a big problem for the church because anything goes in Corinth. Also, anything goes when it came to religion. Over 26 different temples were in Corinth. You could go to Corinth and worship almost any god that you wanted. Corinth was also a place where competition was often king. The Isthmian Games were there. The Olympics were often held there. And the Olympics back then weren't just for athletic feats and contests. They were also for oratory, poetry, debating. So Corinth became a place where travelers would come from all over the world to visit. People would pour their money in seeking to invest and lots of people were getting rich. So Corinth was a place where people would come to, people would go to lose themselves, people would go to make a fortune. And it's into that context that Paul shows up. But before I tell you about Paul's visit, let me mention to you uh, Corinth's mythological first king. The first king of Corinth uh, is supposed to have been Sisyphus. Now that, may, uh, name, uh, that name may ring a bell to some of you at uh, Greek mythology, folks. Sisyphus cheated death a couple of times, but eventually he was given as punishment a terrible task from Zeus. And here was Sisyphus's job. He had a giant boulder that he had to push to the top of a giant hill, and he pushed it all the way to the top. And just as he would get near the top, he would lose his grip, the boulder would fall all the way back to the base of the hill. He would push the boulder all the way up again, only to have it come down again, And for all eternity, Sisyphus went about the meaningless, repetitive task of pushing the boulder up, the big stone, and back down. Kind of like Groundhog Day all over again, every day for Sisyphus. Sisyphus has actually become a metaphor for the meaningless, repetitive tasks that human beings often exercise. Keep Sisyphus and his big stone in mind, and you'll be able to understand something a little better that Paul will talk about. Well, into Corinth, this upstart, sophisticated, very wealthy, competitive, proud, pompous city, Paul shows up. You can go back in Acts chapter 18 and read Paul's first visit to Corinth. Here's what we find there. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now that again is going to be another important piece of information. Paul was a tent maker by trade. And I know sometimes the idea of tent making can be uh, romanticized. But back in Paul's day, tent making was an arduous, painful, laborious way to make a living. 
After all, you'd spend all of your time bent over sewing leather, heavy canvas and pieces of cloth together. Paul was brilliant. Paul was a great speaker. Paul was an author. Paul was a Roman citizen. And yet Paul spent his time making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. Sometimes we picture Paul walking from um, lecture hall to lecture hall, from synagogue to stage, spouting gems as he went about the glorious nature of the gospel. Paul was usually multitasking, sewing tents together, working hard with his hands, and while he was doing that, earning a living for himself, providing for others, sharing what God has done in his life and would do in their lives if people would just turn over their lives to Jesus and seek to follow him. Paul was a tent maker. He worked hard. Rather than living off the patrons who wanted to give money to fund his illustrious career, Paul earned his way as a tent maker, working hard with his hands, providing for himself, as well as writing letters and serving as a missionary to people that needed to hear the gospel. Well, that's kind of a little bit about Corinth. We'll probably pick up a few more details as we go over the next few weeks. But I want to shift gears to talk about the centrality of Christ. As you read through the New Testament, you're going to discover lots of strategy, lots of tactics, lots of philosophy. And those things are still important in our day. To give you a little example, senior leadership team, Jay Carlos and I spend time every week these days talking about how to reopen church, reopen Calvary, when we're permitted to do so. So we talk about what philosophical positions we need to have. We talk about the strategies of doing this. What can come online first? What may come online second? And we don't have the answers to any of that yet, but I want you to know that we continually think about that. We pray about that. And as you read through the New Testament, you discover that Paul had a philosophy of doing ministry. He had a strategy to go about it and he employed certain tactics. So for example, Paul would often come to a city and he would go to the synagogue, a place where Jewish worshipers would gather. He would then often be given the opportunity to speak and he would talk about how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and types that were leading to the Messiah. If he got kicked out of there, if there was no synagogue, He would go to places where people gathered and he'd seek to have a hearing for the gospel and he'd introduce people to Jesus. Paul had a philosophy how to do ministry. He had strategies that he enacted and he had lots of tactics that he employed. But those things were all secondary to what was central in his ministry. Now I got a little assignment for you. I'm going to read through the first three verses of 1 Corinthians again. And as I do, you've got an assignment. I want you to keep track of the words most often mentioned. So what words does Paul repeat over and over and over again? Because in the midst of that repetition, I think we can find what Paul's priority really is. So let's go through. I'll read a little slow. You pick out the repeated words. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere 
who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Did you notice? Lord Jesus Christ, those three words are repeated 11 times in three verses. Paul had a philosophy of ministry. Paul had strategies. Paul had lots of tactics that he employed. But the centrality of all that he did, the center, the priority of everything was Jesus. So here's Paul coming to sophisticated Corinth, coming to this proud tourist attraction, coming to the place where investors were pouring in money and getting rich off the profits, coming to this strategic geographical location, coming to this place where everybody looked up and thought and wished they could be from Corinth, coming to this place where lots of religions were, coming to this place where individuals were doing what was right in their own eyes. And Paul came with one message, a tent maker, Paul, talking, talking about a carpenter named Jesus. That's the centrality of Paul's message. He had a philosophy, he had strategy, he had tactics, but the center of everything Paul did was Jesus. He comes back to that and says it explicitly as you begin chapter two. Let me read those first three verses of chapter two to show you. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, when Paul came to Corinth, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Paul mentions Jesus crucified, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus was crucified, but he rose again. Sisyphus had to move that stone over and over and over again. Meaningless repetition without end. Jesus moved the boulder in front of his tomb one time, never to be moved again. And that changes everything. Maybe in the metaphor, we could say, meaningless repetition is what life is like without Jesus. But life with Jesus, Jesus at the center, is life that has meaning and purpose. Jesus rolls the stone. We see the difference. Our lives are transformed, and that changes everything at that instant and forever and ever after that. Now it's not meaningless, but meaningfulness. Now there's priority. Now there's purpose. Now we get to make a difference, not just for today, but forever endeavor. Well, before we move to our third point, let's stop here and uh, at least ask ourselves a couple of questions. Question number one, do you see any similarities between life in Corinth and life in America these days? A city where lots of people are successful and people are involved in accumulation and they're climbing the ladder and they're pompous and they're proud and they're going through lots of tasks and they're investing in getting rich and they're doing all of these different things and it's all about individualism, patting themselves on the back, but it often feels meaningless and repetitious. Do you ever feel that? Second question is a little more uh, penetrating and maybe stings a little more. What's the center of your life? 
We just looked at it, the first three verses from chapter one and the first three verses from chapter two in Paul's life. And Paul says, yeah, I got a lot of stuff going on, but make no mistake, Jesus is the center. I've got strategy and tactics and I've learned a lot and I've got a philosophy and I'm trying to live these things out. But Jesus is the center of all that I do. My life revolves around him. What's the center of your life these days? I'd asked myself that a few times this week. And to tell you the truth, some of those priorities from culture have a way of slipping into my life and becoming centers and priorities. And before I know it, I'm climbing a ladder of success or accumulation or achievement or having my own way or do, rather than having Jesus as the priority and the center. So even before we look at the problems and even before we dissect how our lives can be different, maybe right out of the chute, we need to say, God's put us in this culture, but are we living differently in the culture? Is Jesus the center and the priority, even in the midst of all the noise and all the different options that surround us? Well, lastly, we come to the church, the commission of the church. What's the commission of the church? Well, if you go back to those first couple of verses, again, you see it pretty clearly. Paul's called as an apostle by the will of God to go to the church in Corinth. And and look at this. Here's one of the few New Testament letters that actually is addressed to us. Verse two, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In a sense, we are the recipients of this letter. Paul not only writes to the followers of Jesus in Corinth, he writes to the followers of Jesus outside of Corinth, through the ages. He writes the letter to us. Well, what's the call to the church then? Well, we've described that call as connect and impact. Now, how does that happen? Well, here's how we've used those two words. As we connect with God through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. We have access with God once again. And all those sinful things that we talked about last week are turned upside down through the realities of the gospel. We are then impacted by God, through Jesus, as the Holy Spirit works on our lives, we connect with God or impacted by God. We are now radically different and transformed. In return, we are then to connect with other people inside this community called Calvary and outside this community called Calvary, connect with them, seeking to impact them. We connect and impact as we connect and are impacted by God. Well, there are a couple of uh, metaphors in the New Testament that actually describe both sides of that. The first metaphor we've talked about before, the metaphor of salt. Now, how does salt work? Well, salt has to penetrate the meat in order to increase its taste and preserve from decay. If the salt does not penetrate, if the salt stays in the shaker, sits in the box on the shelf, nothing at all happens. Salt has to penetrate. Salt has to be part of. Salt has to participate in the meat, in the vegetable, in order to change its taste, increase flavor, and to preserve. 
the church, same way, has to be involved, has to connect with its surrounding context and culture. And as we read through First and Second Corinthians, we're going to see Paul's encouraging the Christians in Corinth to connect with their surrounding culture. If you're not partnering, if you're not participating, if you're not present in the culture, you can have no impact. If the salt is not present, if the salt isn't penetrating, if the salt isn't participating with whatever it's put on, it can't change the flavor or preserve. But at the same time, salt must maintain its integrity. If salt becomes just like the meat, it can't preserve the meat. If the salt becomes just like the vegetable, it can't season the vegetable and make it edible. It's got to maintain its integrity, stay salty, while at the same time, while at the same time, connect and be involved, penetrate, be present, participate. Salt, connect and impact. Connect, be part of, be present, impact to change. Here's another metaphor, though. Citizenship. You know, Paul often writes in his letters um, about the fact that we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, and we're also citizens of our earthly context as well. In fact, as you read through the book of Acts, you'll discover that Paul regularly calls upon his Roman citizenship. But he always remembers his prior, primary citizenship is to God's kingdom and to the heavenly kingdom. Augustine, oh, a saint from years and years, decades ago, he, he, became, he became a believer like in 326 or something like that. It's a really old guy. Augustine wrote a book that still is beneficial to a lot of people today. It's called A Tale of Two Cities. And he, here's, what, here's what it's about. It's about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdoms of the earth. And Augustine starts all the way in the Bible. And he says, all the way from the beginning of the Bible, there's this earthly kingdom, and we are members of earthly kingdoms. We're citizens of earthly kingdoms. But we're also citizens of the heavenly kingdom. The earthly kingdom is all about accumulation. The earthly kingdom is all about power. The earthly kingdom is all about having our way and getting other people to get in step with our plan. The heavenly kingdom is all about sharing. The heavenly kingdom is about giving grace, being generous. The heavenly kingdom finds Jesus as its king who didn't come to be served, but to serve. I thought about uh, those two kingdoms this week and I began to think, uh, well, we have vacuum cleaners and leaf blowers. So let me ask you, are you a vacuum or a leaf blower? What's a vacuum do? A vacuum sucks everything in around. Now, again, it's picking up dirt, which is a good thing very often, but vacuums accumulate, vacuums hoard, vacuums are always pulling in. That may be a picture or a metaphor for an earthly kingdom and how it runs. Accumulation, power, everything being centralized. A leaf blower blows out. A leaf, blow sh a leaf blower shares your leaves with your neighbors. A leaf blower blows the scraps. Now, again, every metaphor, fall, every metaphor will fall down, and this one isn't great. But are you an accumulator, a hoarder? Are you about patting yourself on the back, accumulating power, stuff, money, respect for yourself? Or are you about sharing, extending? Citizens of two kingdoms. 
citizens of this earthly kingdom. You know, we need to be citizens of this earthly kingdom. If you're a citizen of the United States, you need to be a good citizen of the United States. If you're a citizen in Pennsylvania, you need to be a good citizen of Pennsylvania. And we need to do what we do for the common good. Be good citizens. But we must never forget that our primary citizenship, our priority citizenship is in the kingdom of God. So the values and the priorities that we live in the earthly kingdom are not the priorities of accumulation and power. They're the priorities of grace and peace, extending those things to others. Citizens of two kingdoms, being salt that penetrates and is present and partners, maintaining its integrity to bring about change. Well, as we think about connect and impact, as we think about the metaphors of salt and citizenship, I'm kind of reminded of a Jeremiah chapter 29. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah, a prophet, is back at, in Israel. He's well, in Judah. He's in Jerusalem. And he sends a letter to the Jews in captivity in Babylon. So here are the Jews taken from their town of Jerusalem, taken from where they belong. And rather than saying, you need to fight against the Babylonians. Don't do anything that they say. You need to be there and be resistant. Here's what he says. Seek the prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper too. So here we have to walk this tightrope. And we're going to see over these next few weeks how Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to walk the tightrope. You're in this context. We're not in the context of Corinth. We're in the context right here. Make sure that Christ is central as we seek to connect and as we seek to impact. Connect, form relationships, be present, participate and partner, but with a different set of values, a different set of priorities. Rather than accumulation and powering up, seeking to extend grace and peace to others. I don't know about you, but Paul gives a, me a lot to think about just as we begin 1 Corinthians. We live in a context, and my guess is we've swallowed more of the values and priority of, priorities of our culture than we often care to admit. We need to regularly take inventory, regularly do a little assessment to see what the centrality of our lives is. What's the center? What's the priority to make sure Jesus is the center. And then with Jesus' center, connect with God, be impacted by him, connect with people in the Calvary community, make those phone calls, do FaceTime, share messages, and seek to connect and impact with, with people outside the Calvary community. Just like Paul will call the Corinthians, so he calls us through this letter to connect and impact. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, these letters. And maybe at times we're going to lean back a little bit and we're going to hear Paul uh, do a little disciplining of some people in Corinth and we're going to feel good about ourselves because we may not have that problem. And yet, Lord, help us not make excuses too quickly for ourselves. Help us to hear Paul's words clearly, 
to look around and honestly assess the culture. Be thankful for this context that God has put us in. Make sure Christ is the center as we live in this culture and help us to live out the functions of the church. Connect and impact, lifting up Jesus and allowing him to bring transformation and change to our lives, our families, our context, and our culture. We pray in his name.